You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to another episode of Islam, the Real Truth About the Religion of Peace on the Fleming Foundation. I'm here with Dr. Sergio Trifkovich. I'm Stephen Heiner, and we are continuing on our discussion about the invasion of Europe by this religion of peace. And you had, in our last episode, Dr. Trifkovich taken us to the first siege of the gates of Vienna, the, the, just after the Battle of Mohats. And where, where does uh, the history of conquest go from here? Uh, the 16th century was a critical period for Europe in many ways. On the one hand, this was uh, the period when Martin Luther's Reformation was creating deep rifts in Western Christendom, and uh, the period when uh, uh, passions were running high, uh, particularly in the Holy Roman Empire, which was, uh, roughly speaking, the German world, German-speaking world, which was most uh, affected by uh, animosities and passions aroused by by the Reformation. We also had wars in uh, northern Italy and uh, the intervention of uh, the Empire in Italy meant that uh, its uh, undivided attention could not be devoted to the vulnerable southeastern flank. And it was only after uh, the Hungarian defeat in 1526 that the Habsburgs realized that uh, the focus of, of their military effort should be in the east and not south of the Alps. Uh, the first siege of Vienna was not a well-planned affair. It was, I would say, an ad hoc continuation of the conquest of Pannonia, uh, the taking of Buda, the emergence of, of the Ottomans on uh, the actual linguistic and ethnic edge of, of, of the German world. For instance, they did not have siege artillery in uh, their train of supplies, and uh, they did not prepare stores of food and gunpowder gun and ammunition for a sustained siege. So it was one might say a somewhat improvised ad hoc attempt after which they devoted their energy to the fortification of what they acquired and it was quite a lot. It is most of today's Hungary except for its western and northern fringes, a sizable chunk of today's Romania, including Transylvania where uh, a dynasty rival to the Habsburgs continued to claim the crown of Hungary, but under Turkish suzerainty, under Turkish overlordship. The Habsburgs countered by trying to organize a fortified line of defense, which started on the Adriatic Sea at uh, the fort of Seng and went across Karlovitz and between the rivers Sava and Drava, into Pannonia. It was the predecessor of what later came to be known as uh, the military frontier, or in German, Militärgrenze. 
which became institutionalized in the early 17th century and which was based on uh, the granting of imperial lands to professional soldiers who agreed to serve when called upon and who were organized into regiments, but who were exempt from feudal dues and uh, obligations and who were effectively free yeomen. So this was a concept that actually worked uh, remarkably well. Of course, uh, this uh, line of fortifications was also garrisoned by professional imperial troops. It was administered from the city of Graz in, in su today's southern Austria by uh, the High War Council and it stemmed the tide from roughly uh, late 16th century until the new push with uh, the second siege of Vienna in 1683, this line held. And it was also a period when the Ottomans missed a major opportunity to focus on the new stage of conquest because between 1618 and 1648, Europe was engaged in uh, another uh, act of self-destruction, more destructive and bloodier than any until that time, and this was the Thirty Year War, which started ostensibly as a religious dispute and uh, the famous defenestration of Prague, but towards the end of which uh, it was really a struggle for supremacy between the French and the Habsburgs, because the French were allied with Protestant uh, Netherlands and Protestant Sweden. Uh, the emperor, even though Catholic, had about one-third of soldiers in his service who were Protestants, and uh, in this mayhem, uh, Europe was really bled white, and uh, in some areas, especially in Bavaria, the Palatinate, uh, up to one-third of the population had perished. The Turks, however, were at that time uh, busy elsewhere, particularly uh, with Persia in the east, and also there was a string of weak sultans who were lacking Mehmet's or Suleiman's vision and determination. However, the expedition against Vienna in uh, 1683 was also motivated in part by the need to expand in order to resolve the internal problems of the empire which were becoming uh, more than apparent at that time primarily in terms of the declining tax revenue. The expedition was uh, well prepared. Mustafa Karapasha, its uh, commander, uh, had massive resources at his uh, disposal. The army, it is estimated, of about 120,000 men, plus the auxiliaries, including the Tatar cavalry from the Crimea, which carried out preliminary raids and went as far as, uh, as Melk in uh, uh, about halfway between Vienna and Linz uh, on today's uh, Highway A1 in Austria. Uh, the siege was also uh, 
so well planned that uh, uh, the Viennese garrison could not obtain any external help. Uh, it was no longer possible as during the first uh, siege to use underground tunnels and uh, secret pathways uh, to move uh, people and supplies. And uh, indeed, by the beginning of September, when the siege entered its third month, the situation was growing desperate. However, attempts by uh, the Habsburgs to forge a pan-European coalition uh, came to naught, but there was one uh, ruler uh, in Europe, it was the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, who was himself threatened by the Turks in Podolia and uh, uh, in today's western Ukraine, which at that time was southeastern border of Poland. Uh, so he realized that if Vienna were to succumb, then uh, the Turks would be able to concentrate their forces for the next stage of the conquest in uh, the plains of uh, today's western Ukraine and across the Tatra mountains. So it was the contingent of Polish heavy cavalry which advanced across today's Moravia that came to the rescue uh, and carried out the most massive cavalry raid recorded in history. Uh, roughly 20,000 cavalrymen, both heavy cavalry, the so-called winged cavalry, because they carried uh, birds' wings on their backs, and light cavalry, the hussars, stormed the Turkish lines from behind on 12th of September uh, 1683 and literally routed them. It was a spectacle to behold. Uh, uh, the Turks withdrew in disarray. Mustafa Karapasha even left behind his richly adorned tent with uh, various treasures uh, looted along the way to Vienna and also with uh, uh, the chest full of gold coins meant for supplying and, uh, and purchasing supplies for the troops. Uh, in the end, he met uh, an unfortunate end in Belgrade. Uh, a herald came from Constantinople uh, with a richly adorned piece of silk string. And uh, uh, he was uh, duly strangled by, by his servants. Uh, the Habsburgs immediately proceeded to uh, organize a posse and uh, its command was given a very talented general by the name of uh, Eugene or Eugen of Savoy, who was uh, a soldier, professional soldier in uh, uh, Habsburg service, even though he could but speak poor German and was uh, actually born in, Savoy, in today's Savoy, Haute-Savoy, uh, the French department. Uh, he uh, quickly reconquered the Pannonian plain uh, all the way to uh, the Sava and the Danube, which is to say today's Hungary and uh, the northern plains of Slavonia and Vojvodina, and entered uh, the valley, uh, river valleys south of the Danube, uh, advanced through the Morava Valley in all the way to Sofia, today's capital of Bulgaria, and was uh, halfway between Sofia and Constantinople, when at Plovdiv, 
the second largest city in Bulgaria, the news came that uh, Louis XIV attacked the Habsburg possessions in the west, in Alsace, and that he had to abort his uh, war against the Turks in order to defend the western borders of the empire. So again, it was uh, internal Christian disputes and jealousies and rivalries that prevented uh, the, the end of Turkey in Europe, which could have easily happened even before the end of the 17th century. However, Louis XIV was a vainglorious king who was chronically jealous of the Habsburg power and who wanted to assert himself as the hegemon of Europe. And to that end, he had already waged a war against the Netherlands when Britain, for the first time, acted as the continental balancer, uh, letting their former enemies, the Dutch, have uh, both money and the uh, help of the Royal Navy in countering the French. Uh, during the Siege of Vienna, an appeal was sent to Paris also, but Louis remained indifferent. And uh, uh, this was not the first time that the French took a Turkophile position. Already his predecessor, uh, François I, in the 1530s, let uh, the Ottoman naval commander, uh, uh, Suleiman Barbarossa, uh, uh, winter in Toulon, in the main French naval port, and temporarily even the Cathedral of Toulon was converted into mosque, and the statues were covered so as not to offend Muslim sensibilities. Well, by attacking the Habsburgs in Alsace uh, and forcing Eugene to abandon his pursuit of the Turks, the French really guaranteed the survival of Turkey in Europe for another 150 years. Uh, the 18th century was the period of Turkey's decline without fall. Various wars were fought, the most significant of which was uh, against Catherine the Great of Russia, when the Russians conquered uh, the northern shores of the Black Sea and uh, uh, conquered what was later to be called New Russia, uh, that's southern and central Ukraine. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, they were able to hold their own against the Persians, but their control over Egypt, where the Mamluks were in charge, and over the pirates of Barbary coast was only nominal. Uh, in fact, even though uh, those lands were formerly part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, no administrators could be sent to either Cairo or to, to, to Algeria, and no taxes could be collected. You use the term Turks when we refer to the Ottomans, and today when we think of the Ottoman Empire, we, we think of Turkey. Are those terms interchangeable when we're, we're talking about this group historically? Even though the Turks were the most dominant group, and even though Turkish language uh, had replaced both Arabic and Persian as uh, the language of uh, 
diplomatic correspondence and uh, of uh, uh, literature, it was possible for non-Turks to be co-opted into the ruling elite of the empire, which particularly applied to talented Christian boys who were kidnapped from their parents when they were young, uh, seven, eight, nine, perhaps 10 or 11 years old, not older, uh, converted to Islam and uh, brought up as uh, Janissaries, as professional soldiers who had no loyalty to anyone but their, uh, their sultan and uh, their unit. Uh, it was from uh, these boys, mostly from the Balkans, because the jizya was not practiced elsewhere, that uh, uh, the more talented, uh, more intelligent and uh, more active ones were recruited into the civil service. And uh, uh, the prime example is the Grand Vizier of Suleiman the Magnificent, Mehmed Pasha Sokolu, uh, Serbian Sokolovic, who came from a small uh, Orthodox Christian village in Bosnia, but he retained uh, uh, the memory of his origins and uh, of his family. And so even when he advanced to the position of the Grand Vizier, he actually promoted his own brother, who was a, an Orthodox monk, to become uh, the first patriarch of the renewed Serbian Patriarchate, which was extinguished at the time of the Turkish conquest. Uh, another path to advancement was uh, through uh, the success uh, in military command. And that's where particularly the uh, Mamluks uh, came into their own, including a line of uh, uh, Mamluk commanders who originally came from Albania on uh, the eastern side of the Adriatic Sea. And uh, last but by no means least, converted Christian renegades. For instance, uh, the Turkish commander in the Crimean War in uh, 1853 to 1856 was uh, uh, Latas Pasha, who uh, was born uh, a Serb serving in the Austrian military, escaped to Turkey, converted to Islam, and actually re uh, attained the rank of field marshal or Pasha. So the Turks were not exclusivist in uh, uh, their paths of advancement for non-ethnic Turks, which is the characteristic of all empires. The Russians thus had many Baltic Germans in both senior civil service positions and uh, military commands. And likewise, the British uh, were perfectly happy to promote both uh, the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh to positions of prominence, and also uh, the uh, denizens of the dominions. So this imperial spirit uh, lasted until close to the end, when it was replaced by the newly fangled, newly discovered Turkish nationalism, which is mostly associated with the rise of Mustafa Kemal, Kemal Ataturk, and the birth of the secular Turkish Republic. However, the nationalist ingredient was already strongly in evidence with the first mass pogrom of the Armenians uh, in the 1890s, 
and also uh, uh, the mass murder of Armenians, which took an unknown number of lives, the most reliable estimates uh, speak of about one and a half million during the Second World War, still happened under the imperial Ottoman auspices, but had all of the characteristics of not only religiously, but also ethnically based uh, cleansing. The authorities of ISIS would claim to be the latter-day inheritors of the caliphate that you've been outlining for us across a couple episodes. Is there any way that this claim can be validated? Uh, nothing succeeds like success. And uh, I cannot emphasize strongly enough how important in that ISIS claim was the fact that at that time, in 2014, they actually controlled substantial territory which had all of the characteristics of a state. Uh, had they been able to hold on to it, had they been able to make it functional and to develop a military force capable of withstanding an assault against it, uh, that claim would have been more valid. In other words, the claim was not stricto sensu legal or constitutional, because there is no clearly defined set of legal and constitutional tradition, uh, uh, conditions to make it legitimate. It was more the fact of the existence of a state which applied uh, the principles of early caliphate uh, of the four rightly guided caliphs, which was by uh, its own uh, admonition based upon the purest form of Islam, unadulterated by the greed and kleptocracy of royal families and uh, by the secularized influences from the West of uh, states such as Algeria or Turkey. So, the problem that uh, al-Baghdadi and his uh, followers uh, are now experiencing is that effectively ISIS is being renegated to the status of al-Qaeda or al-Nusra or any number of other jihadist groups that uh, may operate terrorist networks but no longer have the tangible territory with a capital, with a uh, the population and with uh, administrative structures, with tax collection, with export of oil, as you may well remember, they were actually sending convoys upon convoys of tankers full of oil through Turkey to the Med Mediterranean ports and earning a lot of money that way. So it was really the collapse of uh, their military resistance to uh, the Iraqi army on one side of the border to Bashar al-Assad's Syrian army on the other and the US-led coalition, which primarily means Syrian Kurds, uh, that invalidates the claim. In other words, uh, the caliphate would have existed had it been able to, uh, to survive the onslaught. Uh, its inability to do so will make that claim uh, pretty dubious because, after all, 
even in Muhammad's case, had he not been able to establish a territorial base uh, after the Hijra, after his move from Mecca to Medina in 622 AD, he would have remained a marginalized, self-proclaimed prophet to whom nobody in particular would have paid much attention. And as you say, nothing succeeds like success. Exactly. As I alluded to as as we finished our last episode, Dr. Trifkovich, and, and we are going to cover here what's thrown at Christians or at anyone these days who dares to allude to uh, this history of Islam or the the new, shall we say, conquest of Europe, the quiet conquest of Europe by by Islam, you're going to get the response of, well, but the Crusades. And you spoke about it in larger detail. Can, can you at first make sure that our listeners have the proper ammunition when, if they haven't researched it themselves more thoroughly, when someone says, well, but the Crusades, what's our first response? And, and give us a little bit more history about the first crusade, because I think that's where we, we didn't go into too much detail in our last episode. When uh, uh, the Holy Land, Palestine, succumbed to uh, Muslim conquest in the middle of uh, the 7th century, uh, the Byzantines regarded it as an act of divine vengeance for uh, their own shortcomings and sins. And uh, this was the period when the iconoclastic disputes were in full swing between those who venerated icons and those who wanted them banned. Uh, the Muslims claimed that uh, Jerusalem was as holy to them as it already was to both Jews and Christians because uh, one Quranic episode, Muhammad's alleged flight to heaven uh, on, uh, uh, on his mare uh, named Burak, uh, took off from the Temple Mount. And it was there that Al-Aqsa Mosque was subsequently built as soon as, as the Muslims conquered the city. And that's why to this day, uh, the ownership and, uh, and uh, access to uh, the Temple Mount remains disputed because for the Jews, of course, it's the site where eventually the Temple should be rebuilt in order for Jewish faith to be practiced to the full capacity. And to the Muslims, it is uh, hallowed ground. Uh, and we had bloody disputes resulting in any number of deaths over the decades regarding access to, to that area. However, uh, the Christian world, Christian world, and I'm now talking about East and West alike, never came to terms with this. And uh, uh, to them, uh, Jerusalem was as holy as it was to the Jews who uh, kept greeting each other with next year in Jerusalem. Uh, the schism of 1054 uh, between Eastern and Western Church did not change much in the equation uh, to both Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic Christians returning uh, uh, Jerusalem to Christian rule and Christian sovereignty was a permanent goal, the one that could not be given up lightly. Now, 
the Byzantine emperor appealed on the Pope to help him reopen uh, the path to the Holy Land for Christian uh, pilgrims, which was disrupted by Turkish Seljuks in southeastern parts of Asia Minor and today's northern Syria, roughly the area of Aleppo and Adana in the uh, 80s, 1080s in uh, the closing years of the 11th century. Uh, the Pope in uh, the 90s first called uh, a church council at which he proclaimed uh, the war to liberate Christ, Christ, the tomb of Christ and which was greeted with exalted shouts of Deus Vult, this is God's will. Uh, it is possible that the Pope also had a, a political objective of bringing the Byzantine Empire back into the fold or overcoming the schism by sending a large, numerous and well-armed Christian army to the assistance of the Emperor. However, as this army advanced across the Balkans uh, towards Constantinople, the Byzantines were scared because very often these West European crusaders behaved as if they were marching through conquered land and not through fellow Christian country. Uh, he arranged for the quick transport of those troops across the Bosporus and they advanced through Asia Minor. However, because of the lack of preparedness uh, on behalf of uh, uh, the Muslims, they were able, in spite of divided command and in spite of certain rivalries that existed between different Christian contingents, and in spite of the death of the German Emperor Friedrich Barbarossa, who drowned while crossing a ford on, on his horse, he was burdened uh, with, with heavy armor, uh, Jerusalem fell in 1099 and uh, the Crusaders were quickly able to establish themselves in the coastal ports of today's Syria, Lebanon and Israel, as well as further inland, and uh, to establish principalities, Kingdom of Jerusalem, principalities of Edessa, and uh, uh, they built forts, they built ports, and uh, the entire area uh, became known as Otomer, uh, the other side, the other coast of, of, of the sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea. Very quickly, uh, trade routes were established with the help of, uh, of Italian maritime city-states, and also trade was established with uh, uh, the it, it be effectively became the western end of the Silk Route. As I mentioned earlier, there were pe long periods of relative peace and coexistence, which didn't mean that either side uh, accepted the given condition as permanent, but certainly for the Christians, this was a form of coming home. It was not uh, an act of conquest. They never once in their rhetoric concerning uh, the Crusades talk about conquering Mecca or Medina or uh, uh, destroying the holy places of Islam. It was always the rhetoric of reconquering, reconquista. And after all, uh, the term reconquista brings us to 
Spain. So bearing in mind that uh, uh, between the Muslim conquest of the Holy Land in the middle of the 7th century and uh, the Christian reconquest of uh, 1099, we had only the time span of 450 years. Compare it to the Spanish Reconquista, which started in the foothills of the Pyrenees, uh, the maximum advance of the Muslims to Asturias in the middle of the 8th century, and the final end of uh, uh, Muslim uh, presence in Spain in 1492, we had a period of almost eight centuries. And yet, uh, no Spaniard uh, would accept and uh, uh, even contemplate the notion that uh, the Reconquista was anything but the rightful uh, war of regaining what had been lost to brute force uh, many centuries uh, before. So it doesn't matter how much time has passed if uh, uh, a certain act is regarded as intrinsically unjust and unacceptable both in moral and legal and theological terms, then the passage of time between the Muslim conquest of Jerusalem in uh, uh, the 7th century and the Crusader attempt to re-establish Christian presence in the Holy Land uh, four and a half centuries later is simply irrelevant. In their perception and in their terms, this was a just war to regain what is rightfully Christian. And as a defensive measure, the Crusades, it seemed only delayed. It was an imperfect delay of, of what would happen. And as you pointed out, we even the Christians managed to infight among themselves to, to further blunt their opposition to the, the crescent's advance into Europe. Uh, I already mentioned in previous episode that uh, the Fourth Crusade fatally weakened uh, the resistance capacity of the Byzantine Empire and thus facilitated uh, Turkish onslaught onto Europe. Let me also add that the Fourth Crusade doomed the Crusader states in Otremer because by channeling the energies and the manpower and uh, uh, the fighting capacity of the Crusaders to Constantinople, it effectively deprived the remaining uh, Christian strongholds in the Levant of their capacity to resist Islamic Reconquista. Was there no thought of large-scale colonization of this area, or was that simply unthinkable to Europeans enjoying a very high standard of living to say, hey, would you like to go live out in the Levant and possibly get massacred by Muslims? Uh, the issue is more complex than that. First of all, uh, when the Crusader knights and barons came to the Holy Land, they actually found a functional economy which was based on uh, uh, the form of land tenure that would not have been amenable to small holdings uh, and uh, to, to their carving up into five or ten acre lots. The second problem was that uh, 
northern and western European farmers were used to different climate, different uh, crops, and different farming methods to uh, what was needed and uh, what was useful in the Middle East. And last but by no means least, uh, the cost of transporting them would have been such that we are talking uh, about the Venetian fleet, which exacted payment from the Crusaders in the form of sack of Zara and the conquest of Constantinople. So it would have been very substantial. And uh, uh, finally, we are also looking at the period when, after the glorious 12th century, which saw the flowering of Gothic architecture and, uh, and uh, consolidation of uh, European uh, high Middle Ages and mature forms of feudalism, in the 13th and 14th centuries, we, we have successive uh, epidemics of plague, culminating in the Black Death of uh, the 1340s and 50s, which wiped out close to one-third of Europe's population. So you actually had chronic labor shortages in the late 13th and uh, uh, throughout the 14th century, resulting from, uh, from pandemics. So, both in terms of economic efficiency and of political will and of cost of colonization and of availability of, of manpower, this would not have been a viable project. Let me add that even uh, uh, when we look at uh, the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans in uh, the 14th and 15th century and thereafter, we don't see any significant movement of Anadolian Turks into the newly conquered lands. Uh, this did happen in the limited area of uh, the hinterland of Constantinople, what is effectively today's European Turkey, or maybe to Adrianople, which is a hundred miles away. But uh, elsewhere in the Balkans, the Muslim communities emerged primarily from the conversion of local populations, uh, both in the case of Bosnian Muslims and Albanian Muslims and of Bulgarian Pomaks. We are looking at uh, either Slavs or Albanians and not colonized Turks. Well, I think that's a good place for us to end our episode, Dr. Krivkovich. We've, we've continued your discussion of the, the growth and history of Islam in, and its invasion of Europe, as well as a, another summary of the Crusades and its efforts. Thanks, as always, for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.